Well, why don't you, uh, if you haven't already done so, take your Bible and turn to Job chapter 1. We're going to spend the next 14 weeks or so with our friend Job, and we may finish it then. We may spill over into the summer semester. Um, I've wanted to go through Job for some time. It's one of those books I think we're all, uh, what do they say, it's kind of like a classic. It's a book that everybody owns, but no one has read, right? Or it's a book that we're all somewhat familiar with, um, but and as I was sharing with Terry a few weeks ago, I think we know chapter 1 and chapter 2 pretty well, and we know chapter 38 to 42 fairly well, but it's that really big, difficult middle section that most of us maybe haven't read, or if we have, we've done you know the Bible reading plan, we sort of speed through that part. Um, it's poetry, first of all, which isn't easy to understand. And um, just, just in my own study of the book, those sections of Job are the most difficult sections of the Hebrew Bible to translate. Um, it's the most difficult section of the Hebrew Old Testament uh, in the whole canon of, of Scripture. Um, and, and not only is it hard to translate, it's hard to understand. Uh, you know, what's going on? Who's talking? And what are they saying? And you know, anytime you have a dialogue in poetry, I don't know about you, but I failed, you know, poetry in college, um, you know, trying to understand all that. That wasn't my strength. And uh, so we're going to wrestle through some of those things. But I think most importantly, the reason we need to wrestle with Job is that probably more than any other book in Scripture, um, it lays out a perspective on suffering. And uh, trying to come up with a theme for this is, is a bit unfair because there's multiple themes um, but I trust that, that we all will be amazed by the honesty of this book. Uh, there are things that get said in this book which are things that you and I only say in our heads when we're hurting. Um, God put it in black and white in Scripture. And He put some of those things there. He put the honest thoughts and desires and feelings of a human being in the midst of great suffering, he put it in the book because he wants us to know what do we do when we feel like that? Um, can we take those types of honest, raw thoughts to God when we're hurting or when someone we know is hurting? And it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like the, the God of grace and mercy is in this one particular situation. Um, as I've, I think I mentioned this when I preached on this a couple of weeks ago, uh, I basically spent the last year um, sort of devotionally going through Job and just journaling um, things that came up. And, and one of the things that struck me the most is just the things that get said. I think, you know, I've, I've felt like that. I just, I'd be afraid to say that because it sounds unorthodox. It sounds like if I say that, I'm not trusting God in some way. And I think because of that, uh, there's so much that we can glean uh, from this book. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to jump in. I'm scared to death because uh, I've got a hundred questions that aren't, are unanswered so far about, uh, about Job. But Lord willing, we'll be able to answer at least some of those. And, and I think... Um, I think this will be a very profitable study. I want to challenge you up front. If you're going to be in this class, um, I'm going to ask you to commit to do one thing. Okay? And I, I hope that all of you are reading your Bibles 
in some sort of regular fashion. Um, I'm going to ask you in the next 15 weeks to read through the book of Job at least once. Okay? It's 42 chapters. It's got that really, really difficult poetry between chapter 3 and chapter 37. Um, but, but you need to familiarize yourself with Job because we're not going to be able to, to go through every word, every nuance. Uh, so my expectation is going to be that all of you are, are at least somewhat familiar with the book. Okay? You guys think you can do that? Can you read through the book of Job at least once in the next 15 weeks? You know, I mean, if you read a chapter a day, I mean, you get through it in a little over a month and a half. So that, that's, not, that's not too difficult. Um, but uh, I, I need you to do that so that we can all uh, be familiar with this. Um, how many of you know Brian Birdwell? You know that name? <clears throat> um, excuse me, one second. Uh, Brian Birdwell uh, was just elected uh, to the state congress, uh, state of Texas. Uh, he is a retired lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And um, he was stationed in the Pentagon uh, one morning, uh, came out of his office, went in to use the men's room, and as he was walking out of the men's room, the airplane from 9-11 slammed into the Pentagon. And... uh, he sustained burns over something like 90% of his body. And um, I read his biography called Refined by Fire. I read that uh, over the summer. Um, I don't cry a whole lot when I read books. This was an exception. And... um, This is probably the closest thing to comparing something to Job's suffering that I've ever read. Uh, Some of you that are familiar with how they treat burn victims, um, I know Marnie is really familiar with that because of her training. Um, It involves a regular scraping away of the skin which you can imagine if there's no skin there but just muscle, just flesh. Um, And Brian recalls some of those things in his book. He writes, I was walking a fine line between life and eternity. I was in such excruciating pain, I begged God constantly to let me die. And there was no reprieve. Look at Job chapter 3, please. Job chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night which, which said, A boy is conceived, may that day be darkness. What's he saying? Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. What he's saying is, I'm hurting so much right now, I wish that I had never been born. Brian Birdwell writes, The nurses kept me heavily drugged, both because of the burns and because of the treatment, so everything about my world was scrambled. 
I couldn't remember much of anything except for a few images and parts of intensely emotional events. He writes later, the pain of the explosion when the jet hit the Pentagon and and him, the pain of the explosion was minor compared to the pain I now experience. The scrubbings, that's the, they would put them in this tank. You guys are familiar with this. They put them in a tank and they scrub the body. The infections, the grafts, the swelling. Nothing took away the hurt completely. While some medications dulled the pain, my skinned, burned body refused to stop screaming out in anguish. I began to pray for the times when I would go to surgery. At least then I would be knocked out and would experience some relief. But mostly I lay in my hospital room, unable to move, unable to take away the pain. I spent a lot of time waiting, waiting for the pain to go away, waiting for my body to heal, waiting and thinking. Um, How many of you have read this, Refined by Fire? You need to read this. Um, if, if nothing else, um, he's one of our elected officials now in the state of Texas. So it's a good way to get to know uh, him. Uh, he came to our church, what, a couple of years ago? Visited our church. Um, but I, I, one of the best biographies I've ever read. Um, if nothing else, um, I've never suffered. Anyway. Now, um, we need to do some uh, biblical table setting here. Um, let's, uh, let's just jump in here uh, with both feet here, okay? Uh, Job. Who is Job? Um, the Chapter 1, verse 1, if you want to look there, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was... Job. Where is us? If you type that into Google Maps, it says, I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> so I'll show you. Okay. Um, this is the Middle East, right? Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Israel is going to be right in here. And uh, us was a region in the northern plains of what is now Saudi Arabia. Okay? So we're talking this area right here. And um, this ne- that, that's a modern-day map, so you can kind of get oriented. Now we're just going to kind of zoom in on this little section right here, okay? We're going to zoom in. And this is an ancient map. You can see here's the Red Sea. Egypt would be over here. And um, you can see... Uh, well, this is the tail end of Israel here, but this is the land of... I know you can't read that. This is the land of Uz right here, this this brown area. Okay? And uh, so that's where he lived. And uh, what we're going to see, his uh, three friends... I don't know why we always say three friends. There's actually four friends in the book. You remember that? There's four friends, and all of them come from the land uh, east of Uz. So they're going to be coming from the Iraq area, perhaps as far as Iran, but uh, in general, coming from that area uh, is where his, his friends are going to come to to see him. Okay, That's the land of us. It'll be on a quiz, mark it. Okay. Uh, Northern Arabia, later called Edom. Um, this is the region where, you remember uh, Esau? 
the father of the Edomites, um, one of the brothers. Um, that's where he ended up settling. Do you remember that? He ended up going south uh, out of uh, Canaan there, and that's where he settled in the Edomites. Today we call it Saudi Arabia. Also, verse 1, we learn about Job, that Job was a righteous man. Look at this. Uh, he, man, he was a man who was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. What does that all mean? Who's the most godly person that you know today? Just what comes in your mind, okay? Um, this, is, this is a Hebrew way of saying this guy was the most godly man that ever lived in this day. This is the best of the best. Um, now, we, we need to make sure that we're not misinterpreting. When it says blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil, um, that doesn't mean that he was somehow, he didn't have a sin nature, he didn't sin. What that, what that means, those are Old Testament ways of saying this was a believer. This was someone who really walked with God, who really trusted God and, and was living out his faith uh, in obedience to the Lord. So this, this was an upright man, a, a God-fearing man, a righteous man. And he was also a very blessed man. Look at verse 2. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Again, uh, not only was he the most righteous man that lived in this day, um, he was the most prominent financially speaking, and in terms of the blessings of family. He had 10 children. He had over 10,000 animals, if you do the math there. And you understand that wealth in those days was measured in livestock, right? Okay, so what they're trying to say is this guy was rolling in the dough. This guy was very, very well-to-do. And he had very many servants, And then this statement, which you can read over it if you're not careful. He was, according to the God-inspired, inerrant word, the greatest of all the men of the East. Okay, That's not hyperbole. That's really how it was. He was probably the richest. He was probably the most godly. And by every evaluation possible, he was the most blessed man that ever existed. Okay? Now, <laughs> why does the Bible tell us all that? Why? Does Job fear God for nothing? Okay? The, the ch- one of the challenges of this book is why did Job worship God? Okay? It's easy to worship God when your life is really good, right? When your kids walk with the Lord, when there's food on the table, when there's money in the bank account, when the house is over your head, you got you got clothes, everything's going well at the job, everything's going well at church, everybody's your friend, don't have any enemies. I mean, it's easy to worship God when life is like that, right? But what about when life isn't so good? And... One of the reasons that 
this is the guy that God has picked out to walk down the road that he's going to walk down is because he had it better than anybody else. And furthermore, if we want to think of suffering as coming only to people that deserve it, then of all the people in the world, this guy was the least deserving of suffering. Right? He was the greatest of all the men of the East, and he may have lived during the patriarch period. Tell me about the patriarch period. What's that? It's the period when the patriarchs lived. Yeah, I know that, but tell me about it. Abraham. Abraham. Okay, Abraham was the beginning of the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs? Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, those are usually the three, and you, you can usually include Joseph in there, but, um, okay, that's, that's the patriarch period. Um, rather than tell you, I'll ask you, why do you think this may have been written, well, why do you think that Job may have lived during the patriarch period? Any ideas? What's that? Oh, the the study notes. Well, well, tell me what your study notes said. Someone else, why could this be the patriarch period? He seemed to live in kind of a manner that the patriarchs lived. Okay. With the livestock and kind of a bit of a nomadic. Okay, very nomadic, very good. Okay. Look. His age, okay. Turn all the way to chapter 42. Chapter 42. Now, if a man has ten children and those ten children are grown, tell me what a minimum age might be. All of them are adults. Okay? 50, 60? Okay. Now look at Job chapter 42 uh, in the epilogue when God restores his fortune. Uh, verse 16, last, second to last verse in the chapter. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. Okay? Now, the, the text seems to imply um, that after the events of the book of Job, he lived another 140 years. You could also interpret it as once he had the additional, the, the, the second Ten children, and they grew. Then he grew. Then Job uh, lived another 140 years. But no matter what you do, he lived well into his 200s. Okay, perhaps even more than that. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament lifespan, what does what era then does that put uh, Job in? It's in that early patriarch days. Okay. But by the way, why did people live so long early on in the Bible? 
Shall we open a can of worms at 10.15? Okay. All right. We have any pre-flood vapor canopy theorists here? Okay. I see. I, I'm going to get you. I get you to come out of the closet there. Um, yeah. Um, and, and and I asked the question because it, you know it, it comes up, um, and we'll talk more about this later on in Joe. But uh, the reality is we don't know. For some reason, uh, early on in Scripture, people lived much longer, and after the flood the ages drop off to where about mid, mid to the end of the patriarch period, people start living what we would call normal ages, normal lifespans, 60, 70 years, sometimes into their 80s. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk more about that. But all that, that helps, as Jack said, that helps point that Job lived probably during that early time in history. There's another thing that points to that. Look back at Job chapter 1. Look at what he did. Um, Verse 5, and it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, his children, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So what's he doing every morning um, after these feasts that his children would engage in? What's he doing? He's offering sacrifices on behalf of his children. Now, when did the sacrificial system of Israel, as we know it, when, when did that come into play? During Moses and the law, right? That's when all that Levitical system gets set up. So if you have a father essentially being the priest of his own family, that would put it, at a time before the law, before Moses. Do you understand that? So this is, again, pointing to the patriarch period when um, religion, in terms of uh, the offerings that were offered, were done by the father in the family rather than by the priests in the temple or in the tabernacle. Rich? Well, it seems, too, that uh, the, the idea of, of having to make a sacrifice on behalf of uh, started way back in Cain and Abel. I mean, it was something that right. people That's right. Yeah, and, and more likely God had revealed perhaps to Cain and Abel, perhaps to Adam and Eve, um, that this was the expectation in terms of sacrifices and that was passed down from family to family until the time of the law when it became part of the, the priest's role to do that. Okay, so he may have lived during the patriarch period. Uh, let's talk about the book of Job. The author of the book is anonymous. We don't know who wrote the book. And it's kind of like the book of Hebrews. Um, we can guess, but... Actually, frankly, we have better guesses for Hebrews than we do for Job. It's an anonymous book. And furthermore, the date of the writing of the book is unknown. So we think that Job probably lived during the patriarch period, but we don't know when the book was, was actually written. The book is composed of two chapters of prose or narrative, uh, the first two chapters, 40 chapters of poetry, the dialogue, and then finally, a short epilogue of prose. So if Hebrew poetry, if the sound of that term makes you want to run for the hills, guess what? We're going to learn some Hebrew poetry over the next few weeks. Okay? 
And, and I, I tell you, I, I, you guys know I'm an engineer, I'm, I'm analytical, I'm a math science guy, poetry, English is not, okay? Uh, I love Hebrew poetry. I love Hebrew poetry because it is God-inspired and it has a way of stating something, of making a point in a way that narrative and didactic literature just can't do. And it's really fun to preach because of that. Okay, so that, that's the composition of the book. The genre of the book is both poetry and wisdom literature. Job starts what we call in our English Bible the wisdom books, right? What are the wisdom books? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and usually they include Song of Solomon in that. So it's, it's poetry, but the genre, you guys understand that word, the type of literature is, is wisdom literature. It's, it's designed to impart wisdom to uh, the readers. Job the man is mentioned in James 5.11. Do you know that? Flip over to James chapter 5. Which is interesting because a lot of guys will say, well, Job was this fictitious man that... Um, you know, didn't really live. He's sort of a, a caricature. Um, they make the story over the top to make the point, but this isn't a real man. But that's not what the Bible says. Look at James chapter 5. James, the half-brother of our Lord who writes this book, uh, actually refers to Job as a real human being, a real man. Look at verse 11 of James chapter 5. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So not only does James, the New Testament, reference Job as a real man, but that verse sort of gives us a little bit of interpretation to the book of Job, doesn't it? And we'll come back to that in a minute. Furthermore, the book of Job is actually, there, is actually quoted in 1 Corinthians 3.19. Did you know that? There's a quote from the book in 1 Corinthians 3.19. Let's uh, go ahead and move on here for sake of time. Um, okay. I know it's early morning. Some of you haven't had your coffee yet, but we're going to do another geography lesson here, okay? Uh, this is the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea, or whatever you want to call it. What are these caves? Anybody know the caves? The Dead Sea Scroll Caves. How many are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, 1947, there was a, uh, a shepherd boy who had lost a sheep. And so he strayed away from the banks of the Dead Sea into the mountainous region nearby to find the sheep. And he found, I think it was Cave 4, he walked into this cave and discovered these two, three-foot jars all over this cave. He opens one of the jars, and inside is a scroll. And later on, they find out that these scrolls were dated, some of them, 300 years before Jesus lived, 300 B.C. So, you know, when news got out there, every archaeologist in the world wanted to come and excavate these areas. When they were all done, they found a total of 11 caves, um, hundreds of thousands of fragments, 
including every Old Testament book except for the book of Esther. And um, I've taught on this before, but but the, the big deal about the Dead Sea Scrolls from a biblical point of view is that it verifies the accuracy of the Old Testament to before Jesus' time. You guys know that the oldest copy of the Old Testament manuscripts that we have date to 1000 A.D. That's a long time for errors to come into play since the Old Testament was finished being written in what year? About 400 B.C. Very good. Okay, so you've got 1,400 years for errors to come into place. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls come in and they say, hey, now we've got manuscripts that are just 100 years older than when the last book of the Old Testament was written. And uh, so that, that's the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is they, they verify the authenticity, the accuracy of the Old Testament books to before Jesus, before his time. Okay, now, one of the things that they found up here in Cave 11, you see that up there? It's way, way up here. I think it was the last one that they discovered. There's a picture of Cave 11 with some people, um, some tourists looking at it there. One of the things they found in Cave 11 were four fragments of what is called a targum. Does anybody know what a targum is? T-A-R-G-U-M. Targum? A targum is a translation of a biblical book into another language, in this case Aramaic, which is a sister language of Hebrew. And they found four fragments of a translation, a targum of Job in Aramaic, in Cave 11, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, This is not, and Lisa can testify to this, I looked all over even last night, still looking on Google, trying to find a picture of one of these targums. And some of the scrolls, you can find pictures uh, pretty easily. Some of, them, some of them are locked up, depending upon who owns them, who, who has authority over them. So this is, this is not the targum of Job. Okay? This is one of the Isaiah scrolls. Um, but that would be similar to what it would look like. Okay. Let's look at an outline of the book of Job here. I just printed it there in your... In your notes, there's a prologue to the book, the first two chapters. Then there's sort of a transitional chapter where Job curses the day of his birth. And then there's this really big section, what scholars call the debate section. And what's going on here is his three friends go back and forth with Job. And there are three rounds, three rounds to the fight, so to speak. Okay, The three friends each have... Uh, three speeches, and then Job responds to them. Three speeches each, by the way. And uh, this is where they just go back and forth, where Job's friends start off trying to encourage him and end up accusing him. Uh, And the section just gets heated the more you read. Then there's a, a, a short little section in the middle that they call the wisdom chapter, and we'll see why that is in a minute. Job gives a lengthy response. Uh, his friends aren't talking anymore. So he gives a lengthy response in 29 to 31. And then this younger man shows up. And apparently he was there the whole time. But because of his age, he didn't speak up until now. His name is Elihu. And in chapter 32, all the way to the end of chapter 37, Elihu is going to respond to everything that he's heard. And one of the things that we're going to see, when you read Job, pay attention to Elihu. 
In fact, a, a great way to, to go into the book of Job is to try to, if you could write down in one sentence, this would be great, write down in one sentence, what were the three friends trying to tell Job? Okay, What were they trying to tell him? And then the second one, in one sentence, what is Elihu saying? What was his message? Because it's very different. And Elihu becomes, what he says, becomes one of the interpretive keys to the book. So we've got to pay attention to our, our young friend here, Mr. Elihu. And then finally, the Lord speaks out of the storm, out of the whirlwind. Um, one of the most awesome speeches that God delivers in the whole canon of Scripture. And then there's the short epilogue that we glanced at just a few moments ago. Okay, so that's a little outline to help you navigate through the book. Now, most importantly, let's, let's spend the rest of our time. What is the book of Job about? Okay, what is it about? Those of you that have read it are familiar with it. If you were pointing to themes, purposes, what would you say? This is the part where you guys talk. What's that? Trials. Okay. Suffering. Okay. Sovereignty of God. James. Let's just write that down. Why is this happening? How many of you have said that in your life? Okay? It's a very, very relevant book. Very relevant. Someone else? Another theme? Okay, a heart attitude towards God. Rich? The superiority of the majesty and Okay. And we could even say of God in general, but certainly his knowledge. Yes, Bill? Does the, the sin impact our Tim's impact on suffering, whose fault, we might say? <laughs> Is it God? Is it the sinner? Is it the Chaldeans that come in and kill all your cattle? Ruth. Isn't that amazing? Sure, sure. God and Satan. Nowhere else in the whole Bible. In fact, there's only... I think there's only four places in the whole canon of Scripture where we hear Satan speak. This has two of them. Okay, and... Uh, yes? A lot of that shows us Satan's character. Okay. 
So we see more about who Satan is. Okay, his methods. Yeah, I have a whole mini-series in this called How Satan Tempts People in Suffering. Sheila. (laughs) Very good. Trusting God beyond our understanding. Very good. That sounds like a Bible verse, doesn't it? Very good. Someone else. How about how to gently rebuke your wife when she's wrong? (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, she was way out of line, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you say? And do you see how graciously he corrects her? My wife would not be too. Well, I, better than calling her a fool, right? I, yeah, context is everything, isn't it? Um, what else? How about how and how not to minister to your friends who are hurting? Right. Um, in fact, let me, let me just, can I just illustrate this for you? Look at Job chapter 4, verse 2. Um, chapter 1 says, And Eliphaz the Temanite answered, verse 2, of Job chapter 4. If one ventures a word with you, talking to Job, if one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? And I wrote down in my journal, it's easy to minister to somebody when you aren't experiencing their calamity. Or it's uh, it's easy to become impatient with somebody when you aren't experiencing their calamity. Right? There are some wonderful questions that the book asks also. Flip over to chapter 9 and look at verse 2. Like I said, this book has the I want to say audacity, but it's it's not really audacious. Um, For whatever reason, the book of Job is not afraid to say out loud some of the things that you and I say in our heads and would be scared to say. But we need to consider them. Look at Job chapter 9, verse 1. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so. Now watch this. But how can a man be in the right before God? Isn't that a great question? 
Look what he says. Verse 3, if one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. I mean, who's going to question God, right? Who's going to dispute with God? Um, great questions that, that it asks here. Let's look at another one here. Oh, we're out of time, aren't we? Okay. Well, here's uh, just some ones I came up with. Obviously, it's about suffering, Satan, the sovereignty of God, the justice of God. Um, why does God ultimately rebuke Job? If he's a righteous man, he's a God-fearing man, his friends were wrong, right? Why does Job ultimately, why is he ultimately rebuked by God? Mm, you're close. Job's, the one thing that Job did wrong was that he accused God of wrongdoing. He accused God of being unjust. And so this is a great treatise on the justice of God. Obviously the authority of God, one of you mentioned that. How we interpret providence, ooh. This is a wonderful reminder that God does not give us license or tools to interpret his providence. And that's exactly what the three guys did, the three friends. They said, Job, <laughs> we know why this is happening to you. And they claimed to interpret the providential hand of God. We know why God is doing this. And when the Bible doesn't tell us why, whether it's some big calamity or whether why some tsunami happens or 9-11 happens or some hurricane happens and people stand up and they say, this is why this happened. And they claim to speak for God in interpreting his providence. Look out. Ministering to others in suffering. Okay. That's where we're going, guys, and um, I, am, I am thrilled and scared to death at the same time. So um, looking forward to uh, diving into this next week. Um, next week we're going to uh, spend a little bit of time talking about uh, Job himself, and then we're going to start into a section on Satan, which is the first character that's introduced to us in the book. Okay? Will you pray for me, please, as I study? And uh, I will pray for you as we... Uh, study together and um, trust that this will be a, a wonderful time of growing in the Lord together.